Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a very cool guest. Nadia El-Hawari is a teacher, a student counselor, and a community activist. An educator by trade, Nadia is a founder of the Pasadena Area Community Organizer Group, Hood Liberation. Nadia grew up in the Pasadena and Altadena area, and like several of my other native Pasadena guests, attended John Muir High School. Following Muir, she majored in youth development at San Jose State, and then earned her master's degree in school counseling and guidance from the University of San Francisco. She was an associate teacher and counselor in the Bay Area, but returned home to become a counselor at her beloved John Muir. She also joined the ranks as an adjunct faculty member at PCC, where she teaches a class on personal growth and development to high school students. Springing from the social justice movement of 2020, Hood Liberation was founded by Nadia and eight other community organizers with four goals to empower neighborhoods of color in our city. These are social justice, holistic healing and health, arts and culture, and economics. For regular listeners of this show, Hood Liberation might sound familiar. Episode 4 guest Nicole Bernard co-moderated a debate for mayor last year that was sponsored by the Pasadena chapter of the NAACP and Hood Liberation. And in episode 11 with Dennis Robinson, his brand classic was organized in 6216 a day in June with Hood Liberation. Based on the success of 6216 a day, Hood Liberation is hosting Black Friday Market on November 26th from 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. at 801 South Raymond. So check it out and support businesses of color. I really enjoyed this conversation for several reasons. For one, Nadia was one of the nicest guests I've hosted on the show, and I think all my guests are great. But even more important is the passion she has for serving as a voice of progress and raising up her fellow residents of Dina. We talk about her background, the importance of Pasadena in her life, race and inequality, and how her neighborhood animals have earned her an amazing nickname. So without further delay, my conversation with Nadia El-Hawari. Nadia, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you inviting me. So we have a lot to cover and we've uh, kind of exchanged some notes back and forth. And so I think the best place to start is talking about our backgrounds. As I understand it, you grew up in Pasadena with two sisters and your parents, your mom being Latina and your father being Egyptian. Can you share a little bit more about your upbringing? Yeah, so um, it's very complicated, I will say. Let me start with that. Um, being being anyone who's from two different cultures is definitely a lot, I think, for a young person to like wrap their mind around or try to fit in a box. I think it could be a lot. But I will say, so both of my parents migrated here from Egypt and Guatemala, um, and they met at LACC, just to give you some context, because everyone always asks, like, where did your parents meet? How did they meet? And actually, we started off living, I think you actually knew this about me, but I lived in LA for like a couple years of my life, maybe like till I was seven, then we moved to Altadena. So I lived in Frogtown, um, which is like a hood in LA. 
we actually had frogs, which was really cool. And I mean, growing up with two different cultures is, is, is difficult within itself. But I think something that I've been really realizing is like, I not only grew up in two different cultures and two different countries and continents, but like I actually grew up in the hood as well, which adds like a whole nother layer of like, that is also a part of my culture, but it's like, it's not like I'm gonna be like, well, yeah, I'm uh, identified with being from the hood, you know, like, but that is a part of me. So I actually wrote um, um, a poem called Mix before and I really love it, but it's, it, it like talks about those three intersections of like, I'm both like camels and pit bulls because pit bulls are associated with the hood and like, I'm both reggaeton and cro- like the chronic, like the chronic album. Like it kind of shows like the intersections of all my identities within one. But recently, and I'll, I'll talk about this more later, but Recently, I've been saying that I think I identify more with being from my city than like any other country. That's probably not the most like popular thing to say, but I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, I feel like I'm from Pasadena more than I am from Guatemala or Egypt because I was like raised here. I grew up here. Like I'm influenced by the culture here and all of all of that, all of that, that entails. But I think my city is just as a part of me as as both of those countries. So very nicely described. You received your bachelor's degree in youth development. Uh, at San Jose State University and your master's degree in school counseling and guidance from the University of San Francisco. So where did your interest in school counseling come from and was it influenced by any particular experiences? Honestly, I don't think it was uh, like too much influenced by any like experiences when I was young. I mean, I think the educators were whatever growing up, but I think specifically I worked at a high school in the Bay Area called San Leandro High and I worked with two of the dopest principals ever. They were twins, first off, which is like phenomenal. I think everyone should have twin principals. But they were like two black men and they were like the most amazing leaders. And I learned so much from them. First, I would never want to be a principal. I think that's not for me. But I learned that I really like identify with counseling. Like as a counselor, you have the power to like decide what path a student is taking. And that can really be turned really, really negative, which a lot of people have experiences with counselors that are really negative. Like, oh, my counselor told me I shouldn't go to college. I wasn't, I didn't belong there. But it's like teachers have an amazing influence, but also counselors are the ones who choose what teachers you're actually taking. So it's like, I'm like, oh my God, counselors are the center of the entire school um, in so many ways. And I think another, I think another part that kind of influenced that is like, I've had a lot of really negative experiences in education. I've been in education for 10, 11 years now, since I was 20. And I've had some really negative experiences that reminded me that I need to be in education. Like I need to be there. And I keep being reminded that in so many different ways. I've been like fired. I've, I've quit before. And I don't, I say those like loosely now because I'm like, those were put in my way to kind of like discourage me from staying in education or to water me down as an educator or to not be so radical. But I just really don't identify with watering, watering myself down. Like, I think it's really important for me to remain true to like why I'm in this fight. Like, it's really a fight in education. That's really what this is. And I, I think this work is really a part of my purpose. It like really fills me up all the way. So thank you for asking that question. So kind of moving on to Pasadena. Being from Pasadena is an important part of how you identify. You kind of talked about that a little bit. As someone such as myself who lives and works in Pasadena, but I'm not from here originally, I want to hear more about your perspective on the city. So what does Pasadena mean to you? You know, when people ask me, what does Pasadena mean to me? I'm like, it's my heart. It's my home. It's, I don't even know what to say. I'm like, it's almost like I'm speechless because there's so many things I would like to say. But I, I recently had wrote something I, where I put like, I belong to my city, like Pasadena and its little sister Altadena are my heart. And these streets really raised me. I used to actually hate where I was from. And I actually ran away the first the first chance that I got, which was college. When I was 18, I ran away to the Bay Area for like eight years. I thought that that would be the solution. But 
the solution wasn't, it wasn't that I hated my city. It was that I, I really hated poverty. I really hated oppression. I really hated all these different things that I didn't understand yet. I didn't understand the bigger context of why I was going through so much in this city. And now that I'm back, I'm like, oh my God, how did I ever not love you? Like, Pasadena, like how did I ever turn my back on you? Because this city is is, is so beautiful in so many ways. Um, and I, I know we're going to talk about like the difference between Pasadena and Dina. So I'll, I'll wait on it, but I'm excited for that. <laughs> But yes, you did mention the difference between Pasadena and Dina. And I didn't really realize that Dina was a thing. So can you talk about the difference between Pasadena and Dina? Yes. So Pasadena to me is what you see on TV. It is um, the Rose Bowl. It's a Rose Parade. It is all the wealth that is here. It is, even if you Google Dina, uh, Pasadena actually, if you Google it, you will see people that do not look like me and do not look like my students. It's like actually a lot of white people when you Google Pasadena. I think Dina is um, is us. It's the entire. It's like an entire culture that we created within Pasadena. It is the hood. It is like not what you see on TV. It is black and brown people. It's like the way I think it's as I said. It's a culture. It's like the way we dress, the way we talk, our slang. I think Dina is a word that was probably created to like take up space within our city. I'm sure this word was created long before I was here, but I think it was really to take up space in Pasadena, like Dina. Dina is like another word, another way to reclaim wh what we've created in this city, like or what the hood that is not represented or what the invisible population that exists here, because we are invisible a lot of times. Like people laugh at me when I say I'm from Pasadena, like I thought you were from the hood. And I'm like, Okay, like it's kind of it's almost frustrating because it's like it's, there's a hood there. You just don't know about it and you don't see it in the same way when you think of Palo Alto, like Palo Alto has a hood, but you would never know that because of like Stanford. I think Dina is is a reflection of the invisible population, but also like a way for us to reclaim that Dina isn't just a wealthy white city. It's also like beautiful black and brown people that, you know, could live in poverty, but we are still thriving and making the most out of our circumstances. So. I grew up in the Los Feliz area and I left like you did to co go to college. I thought I would never come back. And when I came back, um, I didn't feel a connection to it anymore. And when I drive through it, it's very weird and it's a memory, but it doesn't feel like home. And so I love hearing that you still kind of brought Pasadena with you wherever you went and that you returned here because of the connection you had with the city. So I, I love hearing that. Uh, because it, in my case, I had to find Pasadena because my home didn't feel like home anymore. Um, I just didn't connect with it. You mentioned uh, writing a poem and you actually wrote a really beautiful poem about Lincoln Avenue here in Pasadena. And among the lines is a block that ends with the Rose Bowl on one end and poverty on the next. This is a, such a powerful line, I think, because it really represents that there are two Pasadenas like you've referenced. You know, on one side, there's tremendous wealth and promise. And then on the other side, there's real struggle. You mentioned when you think of Pasadena, you think of the Rose Parade or the Gamble House or City Hall, because you see those in movies or TV shows, uh, and not really the East or North e Northwest Pasadena, where there is tremendous amount of need or inequality. So how do you think we can kind of create a community that meets in the middle? This is such a hard question. Um, it is. It is a very hard question. I think now it's like an added layer even because now the hoods and the Northwest and Northwest Pasadena is being gentrified. So it's like soon, I hate saying this out loud, but like soon Pasadena will look more just like one side, like it will look like that wealthier side. And I think that that adds like a completely different component because now it's like 
we can't even exist. Now we're actually getting pushed out fully. Um, so it's like, how do we even meet in the middle when we don't even have a fighting chance a lot of times, like at this moment? Um, like even thinking about Lincoln, like Lincoln, I drive on Lincoln every day. I live on Lincoln and Lincoln looks completely different. Like I see places that are coming up and I'm like, if you just knew that my friend died right there, or if you just knew like what happened right there, or you just, you have no idea the community that you came into, but also, and also you, you don't really care to know. Um, and I think that that, that actually hurts. I think when I drive on Lincoln, it, it actually hurts when I'm like, wow, you guys don't even care. And, um, I, I, I think a way to meet in the middle to answer your question is how do we have more folks? Like you already moved here. The damage is done. But how do we have you contribute to the community that's already here? How do you, the community that you're already impacting, like how do you link with us? Um, for example, there's a taco spot that opened. It's a, it's like a white taco spot. It's not like a brown taco spot. Um, it's called uh, a new restaurant on Lincoln. Do you know which one? Oh, is, it, is it home state? Yeah. Home state. Um, like for example, home state, like you're coming into the community, you're pretty wealthy or like a corporation and uh, franchise. Like how do you link with community centers or the, the high school that you are one block away from? And they actually didn't want to partner with mirror. Um, so like things like that, where I'm like, how do you, how do we have these businesses um, and these people that moved in, like, contribute back to uh, our people and the people who live there and the family that lived there before them or whatever it is. Right. So how do they create less harm? How do they try to create less harm? And I, I'm not sure how many people are actively trying to do that or actively trying to link with the high school or the community centers or the people or, but I think a very little thing you can do is just not criminalize our people. Like, please don't call the cops, please. Like, Talk to your neighbor. If you're afraid of them, we get it. There's biases in this world. Um, but don't but don't create more and further harm. Um, and another small thing you can do is um, just like work and collaborate with people that are on your street, people that you see that might not have as much access as you. Like, how do you do some good in, in this not so great thing, which is gentrification? So that's how I'd answer that. That's a very good answer. Is there a way to balance some of the investment that we need to make in our community without forcing people out, do you think? Well, I... It's a big question, again. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate all your questions. They're, very, they're really good. I think more affordable housing can be a way to balance that. Like you can also invest, <laughs> but having affordable housing is a way to invest with also contributing to the people that are here. I'm not sure if I'm answering this question right, but this is how I'm interpreting it, but like more community centers, more investing in our community, um, I think markets, which I'll talk about in a little about markets are like a way to invest in um, because I, I think that I've learned that I, I don't think we need to wait for anyone to save us or like I, I think we've been waiting long enough for equity. So it's like, how do we help ourselves? How does the hood help ourselves? And I think markets, one reason why I even have markets and uh, with hood liberation is uh, I think there are ways to really invest in black and brown businesses um, to, to like really put money back into our people, to put money back in our pockets so that we're able to even stay here. Like, so we're able to even afford a place here. Like how do we, how do we go to like my friend's brand for clothes rather than Zara? How do we contribute back into each other so we can stay here and we can flourish? I think we've just so come so accustomed to going to old Pasadena and buying from, I'm not going to mention whatever, whatever store. I mean, I was driving through there yesterday. I'm like, I don't recognize any of these places, but I think there's a responsibility. If you're going to spend money, try to spend your money locally. 
and uh, not necessarily across town. If we can do it closer to where you live, that's even better. And now more than ever, even as you're mentioning Old Town Pasadena, like now more than ever, all of the places that we could even afford are like have left Old Town Pasadena. Like Forever 21, for example, like even if we were to shop in Old Town, that was the place that everyone would go because you could get a shirt for really cheap and some pants for really cheap. And now I think it's more inaccessible in Old Town. Like now more than ever, we don't have a lot of places to go down there to shop if you are in poverty. So it's like go to your homie and support your homie on Washington and Lake. There's like a black, a black owned um, business there, like support that instead. So it's interesting because my day job is in commercial real estate and I get flyers all the time of buildings for sale. And there's a building, a couple of buildings for sale in old Pasadena that are just astronomically expensive. And the only way that someone could make that financially work is if you put a chain in there, which is sad. So, I mean, the, the prices don't reflect the needs of the community. And that's, and there's a disconnect there. And that, uh, I don't know the answer to that, but it's a problem in old passing. It's a problem throughout our city. After working at Oakland during graduate school, you returned home and are currently working at your old high school, John Muir, as a school counselor. What does it mean personally to be advising students at the same school that you attended? It's crazy every single time someone says that, I get chills myself. Even though it's for me, I get chills because I'm like, that is so powerful that I work at the school that I went to. And for more than that, like I think that's powerful in itself, but for more reasons than just that. Because I, I, I want to elaborate on that because I don't just look like my students. I am my students in so many ways. Like I was that exact girl in my fifth period who was fighting and heartbroken and lost and a survivor and, and so many things. And I think another really part of a uh, powerful part of that is I haven't really switched up or changed up too much. Like I haven't allowed access and resources like going to college and getting a master's degree. Like I haven't allowed that to change me. Like I don't code switch. I, I speak the way I speak when I teach. I speak the way I speak to teachers. Like I want to remain myself and not allow like the systems, these systems to like water me down or or to to change me because I, I think it's so much more powerful for my students to see me and um, to hear me rather than to see someone else who's conformed or or someone else who has to code switch while they're at work. Like it's so powerful to just be you and I want them to remember they can do that and be successful. They can do that and still find a space for them in this world. And I, I wanted to say this, but I think sometimes people think it's just powerful to be like a black or brown person in education. I'm like, sure, that's powerful representation, but it's like, how are you moving within that space also? Like, how are you a black or brown person in education, just uh, a cookie cutter, like a cookie as a cookie cutter educator, or are you being more radical? Are you being more revolutionary? What are you actually doing to change things? What are you, are you just, are you just another person filling up a space that's kind of like recreating the same oppressive systems, the same rules, the same this and that? Um, or are you actually in there doing some really difficult and radical work? So that is something I'm also very passionate about is like remaining who you are. As someone who's walked the same halls as your students, does it give you a greater connection with them because you had so much in common? Definitely. Um, I think being someone from the community that lives in the community that understands like, I think you just understand on a deeper level that I couldn't actually understand when I worked in Oakland, like I wasn't from Oakland. So it was just a little like, sure, I'm still powerful in this space, but I'm not from your city. 
Um, so there's certain things I just can't identify with you on. And like, I don't know the gangs in the city. I don't know the, the resources in the city in the same way or the struggles in the city in the same way that I, it's like here is like it, everything feels so right because I'm from here. My students know that there's everything they say. I understand. It's like, it, it's a really beautiful and familiar feeling that I know that, that they really appreciate. Right before COVID, you started as an adjunct professor at PCC. Uh, one of the classes you teach is actually directed at high school students. It focuses on personal growth and development and communication skills, positive self-esteem, and problem solving. What do you think is the most important lesson you want your students to learn from your class? I'm really big on like loving yourself unconditionally, unapologetically, and deeply because I think that's the center. We're, we're going to spend every minute of our lives with ourselves. Like every single minute, we're going to spend with no one else but us. There's always going to be those relationships, our wives and our, our kids, but you are with you at all times. So it's like, how do we love ourselves so deeply that we trust ourselves so deeply that we um, are gentle with ourselves? I think I'm really big on those specific things because I think they're the core of everything. Like, And like knowing you're worthy. Like, how do I love myself so deeply? I remind myself I'm worthy. I think another thing would just be really trusting your intuition, um, like really trusting yourself. Like if you feel a feeling when you're going on a date, trust that feeling. If you feel a feeling when you're going into a job, you might need that money, but trust that feeling. Maybe stay in there for a little because I understand how not having money is and poverty is, but also trust what you feel is one of my biggest things. And we do like exercises and things. Also just things that are not traditionally in schools, like setting boundaries. How do I set boundaries with uh, my job? How do I, so I'm not being overworked. How do I set boundaries with my teachers? How do I set boundaries with my parents? I, I can't babysit this weekend. I need to do something for myself. And maybe that's not always an option because I know kids don't have the same rights that adults have. But, and just another thing is like really, I'm saying so many different things as the core thing, but <laughs> just really not following any of these timelines in life, like really following your own. Like you're never too late. You're, you have your own journey and your own path. And, and last thing would be just really finding joy. What brings you joy? Are you happy working at McDonald's? Cool. That is that bringing you joy? Stay there and don't allow anyone to make you feel less than. Like really affirming whatever brings you joy is enough. You don't need to be a lawyer to to feel like enough. And I I know that sounds a little backwards, but it, but it's really like reminding yourself wherever you are is okay. Um, and and just find that find joy wherever you are. So that's my that's my answer. To that one. Those are beautiful lessons. Thank you for sharing that. So I thought it'd be a good transition to talking about Hood Liberation. Hood Liberation was formed last year following the murder of George Floyd and the social justice movement that, the, that followed it. It is described as a community organization, quote, for the hood, by the hood. What I'm amazed at is that of the organizers, you're actually one of the older ones. It was formed with friends and former students of yours, and some are still teenagers. Is that correct? Yeah. So... Um, well, they, they finally have have graduated from teenagehood and they are 20, 21 now. But yes, that, that is true. Um, I actually, the, the root or the reason why I started Hood Liberation was because first I'm one person and sure I'm a community organizer, but I think everything is, should be community based and um, we work so much better in our villages. So I got like a bunch of people that I just knew had that same warrior spirit and that same like love for the community together. And I'm like... Let's have a block party. And I think that that included different ages. But I think the reason why there's so many young people in Hood Liberation and I remember to keep like, how do I include young? Like, how do I center young people's voices is, is because I think young people's voices 
need to be centered at all times. They are our youngest, gen- they are our new generation. I one day am going to be the older generation. I'm, I'm getting there already. Like, how do I center what the needs of uh, the young people? How do I learn from them? They teach me so much. Like they teach me a lot. And I, I'm constantly trying to actively grow because I'm aging. So how do I keep uh, my organizing with what's needed now rather than what was needed when I was a teenager? Because it's completely different now. Young people have been the center of so many movements. And I, I really think that it, when people have organizations without young people, it, it is like genuinely a disservice to communities because that should always be the voices that we go back to. And sometimes I even, even have to check myself where I'm like, all right, Nadia, your voice is, your voice is super valid, but also allow people to keep growing. Don't ever think you're at that top, the, the, the peak of your growth. Cause that's not ever going to happen. Um, like continue to grow from, from younger people. So that's one of the reasons why we have so many, um, young people in liberation and hopefully that answers your question. It does. And I think that is a very important point and founding principle of hood liberation because when you're when you're 18 or in, even younger, you have so much energy and so much passion, you don't really know what to do with it. And you don't really know how things work. You think you know everything, but you don't really know how things work. And so having a structure or having an organization that kind of says, this is how you organize, this is how you make effective change is really powerful because it gives them a roadmap to do the work um, in their community. So I, I think that's great. And I wanted to include one more thing on that um, because I think besides young people's voices being centered, I think we need to think about the ethnicity and the race of the young people's voices that are being centered. Something that I've also learned is like including black voices as the center. So not just young people, but like how do I include young black students or young black youth or like young black people in general? Unlike older generations, and I count myself as one now, uh, I think you mentioned you're kind of getting on the older side, which makes me feel even older. Younger people are more connected to each other because of social media. This allows people to share ideas across our city, our state, or even our country. What role does social media play in recruiting more like-minded people? And are there any limits to it? I think social media has been such a big part of our journey, like such a big part of our journey with the liberation. I think because social media is such a big part of our lives now, even if we always don't love that, that is our reality. And it has helped us have so many people support us. It's helped us like have markets. It's helped us have people to collaborate with. It's it's really helped us connect to all the businesses that we're connected to. We're connected to like hundreds of businesses, like um, which is how we even had like what 70 plus businesses at past or at Dina Day. Um, because because of social media. I'm not sure how we would have done that really instead of maybe going around, but a lot of those businesses don't have storefronts. So a lot of what we're doing is actually bringing them to a place that feels like a storefront for a day or two. I think the limits could be that we, I think we've talked about this as an organization that we also miss the older generation with social media. We actually don't have a lot of people who know what hood liberation is. And sometimes we're in meetings with different orgs in Pasadena and, and, and they've never heard of us because they're, they're just a little bit older of a generation. They're not on social media. So I think that that's our kind of the downfall is that we kind of miss these other generations and those generations are also very important. So I think one thing we've tried to do is like having a Facebook because Facebook is like where all the older generation loves, like my mom posts every day. Um, but I, I do think that that's a little bit of a downfall. Hood Liberation has targeted four components of its mission, social justice, health, economics, and arts and culture. Of these, which speaks to you the most and how are you working to realize this part of your mission? 
So I think going back to even like the question before, I think through markets, we've been really focusing on like economics. We've been really focusing on like our number one thing is like reinvesting our money back into our own pockets and into our own city. And I I think that that has been like our number one, even if we want to say we focus on all these things, I think that's what we've been focusing on the most. Building wealth is in our community, like building generational wealth is in our community. If we are starting businesses and we're having kids, then we get to help our our kids out. Like this is just this is this is something that we're able to really like continue to build and and give ourselves that that leg up that we've never had before. So I think that's that's one of the biggest things that Hood Liberation has been about for the last year or so. And I think that that's really the root of how we started is through that all, we wanted to have an all black everything block party, which was centering black businesses, and we've expanded since then to do brown businesses. But I think that was literally to invest in black businesses, to invest in black people, to invest in the black community. So I think that's our number one. I often ask this question of business owners, but since one of Hood Liberation's goals is to promote businesses, like you said, do you think we do enough to encourage minorities to start their own businesses in our city and support them as they grow? The first thing that came to mind is hell no. That is the first thing that came to mind. And I just even want to start with myself. I didn't even know it was possible to have my own business until the pandemic. I didn't even think that that was a possibility. My mind completely shut off from having a business. I think one of the only ways that Black, Indigenous, people of color have businesses a lot of times is if... First, we have access enough to go to school for business. Another is if their family has a business, then you're inspired to maybe start a business or you know someone. I had none of those. So I didn't even know you could major in business. So I I think that I don't think that we do enough to encourage any Black, Indigenous people of color to start businesses. But I do think during the pandemic, I feel like so many people had so much motivation to start businesses and like believed in themselves. And, and, and they were like, wow, this is not as hard as I thought. Like I'm doing lashes. I have a business. How do I now just build? And I think that it was the first time in my life where I was like, Nadia, you can start a nonprofit. Why have you been? So, which is a, a kind of a similar, it's kind of a business. I'm like, Nadia, you have done so many things. Just make it official. Do this nonprofit. But I don't think we do enough. And I am really excited that the pandemic gave us the opportunity to do that because a lot of us actually had the time because a lot of us don't usually have the time to sit and start a business if we're working really hard and we're just trying to survive. So I'm grateful. One of the beauties of the pandemic is I'm really grateful of the, the motivation it gave to so many people who look like me to start businesses. You know, as we strive for a better future for everyone, you know, what policies do you think we should be pursuing in Pasadena today? that would have the most impact on our community? I know Pasadena just signed a contract with, I think it's called ShotSpotter or something of uh, something like that. I know that that is a way for them to know where a gunshot comes from. And to, I forgot what, but basically the premise of it is that it's criminalizing more of our people. And I'm wondering why so much is being, so much energy is being still invested in policing our community rather than like healing our community and healing with the community. Hearing about that was discouraging because I'm like, wow, we were finally getting to defunding police to some and and reallocating those funds. But now we're getting to, now we're getting to sign contracts that, that are furthering, like further policing without even needing a police presence there. So I was really disappointed about that. I would say definitely putting more funds into mental health support. I am 
really excited that we have a wellness center at, at Mir now and that we have a center for students to take breaks in, a center for students to come to if they're having anxiety attack, a center for all of those things. But we still need people. We still need money. We still need therapists. And I just wish that we, although we don't have like school police anymore, I wish that we invested more funds in that and more, more in education, what is needed in education and, um, and definitely back into mental health. I think that is, I think mental health is a root of so many things and so much like if they really care about crime, the way is literally to help people with their mental health. Most calls are literally mental health related. So I genuinely hope Pasadena invests more in policies around mental health and, and, and definitely defunding the police to, to some degree. So, so we talked about uh, the Rose Market a little bit. In June, you and Hood Liberation organized the Rose City Market, and you're currently planning another one for November. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we're recording this at the end of October. This will probably drop on November 10th. So can you kind of talk a little bit about how Rose City Market kind of came together? And then what do you want the, this new one in November to be uh, compared to the one that you had in June? So I literally lit up when you said um, the one in June because that one was so special. It was so beautiful. It was it was six to sixteen a day, and it was on six to six June twenty sixth. I thought it was the most amazing thing ever, even though the city copied us in some sense. But we had the most beautiful event, and I am like so excited about it because it felt like a celebration of our city, and it felt like after a really tough year and a half, we had a space for everyone to be and a space for all the businesses that just started during the pandemic. So that every time I talk about that market, it like fills me up with so much life and like light and joy. And that market, like we had only uh, Dina based uh, black and brown businesses and we didn't accept anyone else. And it ended up being like 70 vendors and it ended up being like 10 performers, a whole lineup of only Dina based artists. And I think it really felt like a celebration of us, a celebration of Dina, as we talked about, like instead of Pasadena, it felt like a celebration of that invisible side of Dina and our people. And um, the new one is going to look a little bit different because it's not, it is still Dina based, um, but it won't be as extravagant because we really went all out. It's still going to be like a very similar concept. It's hopefully going to have about 50 vendors and the space is going to be a little bit further down. So it's going to be closer to Colorado, which is going to be very interesting because we actually had it a little more in the hood, which was Altadena, which was Woodbury and Fair Oaks. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that changes, who will show up of more like wealthier people will show up from Pasadena and our, so our main thing with Black Friday, I didn't even mention any of this. The main thing is we're having it on Black Friday intentionally so that people can not go. Or how do we, instead of going to these big corporations like Walmart and Target, and I know I name drop a lot, but um, how do we go to a market and support these local businesses that are like, how do we reinvest on Black Friday when we're so ready to spend money, when we have money saved for that day? So the, the in- entire intention of the market is to um, take that money that you're saving for that day and go and support black and brown businesses, local businesses, small businesses, and reinvest in in them and us. So that's the reason why we're having it on Black Friday, which kind of changes the purpose a little bit because uh, 66 Day was, wasn't Black Friday. So that's, that's a little bit of the difference. I can't give you too much detail because we try to like leave some stuff for the rollout and we try to leave some stuff for imagination and, and for our drop. But um, yeah. I think having it on Black Friday is a great idea. Thank you. 
We actually had one planned last Black Friday. And because I don't know if you remember, COVID got really serious around the holidays. We actually had everything planned and we had to cancel the week before. And it was rough, but it was definitely the right decision. And we don't regret it, not even 1%, because it was like, what do we look like exposing our community to COVID when we are the number one people uh, who are also passing from this. So we don't regret the decision, but also we're so excited that we get to do it now this year. Admittedly, I'm a middle-aged white man. Uh, while I like to believe that I have not participated in systemic racism, I'm not naive enough to believe that I've not benefited from it. Um, how can people like me talk about race issues in the community and how can I become an ally to you and your efforts in Pasadena? I, I like this question. I think I actually, I'm going to start with a story. I heard the other day at Blaze, I was sitting at Blaze and I heard an older white couple talking about an interaction she had at work. The, uh, this older white woman had an interaction where she got scared of one of her coworkers and her coworker said, why'd you get scared of me? Is it because I'm black? And, and she felt so offended and so hurt by that comment. And she keeps going about like, why would, why would he say that? Like, that's so like you, she's like really hurt by that comment. Right. And, and that's very valid to be very hurt. As she keeps going, I, I actually decided to talk to them and I was by myself and I felt a little nervous, but I think I just had challenged her to think like, it's, Maybe that that you feel like it had nothing to do with his race, but it's okay to also take a step back and be like, we all have biases. Maybe there is a bias in there that I, it doesn't mean I'm racist, but it also means that maybe I just need to take a step back and be like, I'm sorry you felt that way. You know what? I'm, I'm so sorry that you even have to think like that. I'm so sorry that that you feel like you even have to feel like your race has a part of this interaction. And I, I'm like, and I, I think sometimes it's like taking a step back and taking our like egos out of it and taking our like just taking a step back in general and just being OK with like I do have biases. I am a brown woman and I have biases like I, I so white people definitely have biases. We all have them. We all have racial biases. And and I think being honest is like the first step rather than being so worried about being racist. We're so worried all the time about being racist and it's like, or, or, or sexist or prejudice, but all these things, but race is like the number one that really triggers people. But it's like, just take a step back, <laughs> just listen. Um, and I, and it's really interesting because I want to say the ending of that conversation, we ended up talking for a really long time. I was very tired and they, you know, they expressed some white guilt and they expressed a lot of different things of, of how they felt and how they feel like they don't understand anything anymore. And, and they feel so out of the loop and they feel so guilty for being white. And I was like, that's so valid. I would feel guilty if I was white too. I, it's so valid. Like, especially in the, the, with the uprisings that just happened, like what I would, I, I understand like you're valid, but also they left that conversation saying thank you because I, I approached it with a lot of love and, uh, and a lot of patience and a lot of understanding, but not everyone's going to have that same approach. And not everyone has that energy after fighting their whole lives to educate white people or, or people who don't understand. So I think something that I would say is like the couple took a step back and just listened to me and they stopped being so defensive there. I will say the white guy was a lot, the, the older white man was a lot more defensive than the woman. Like she really received me. He was not receiving me. Um, he was like really good. Like he was really, um, on, on the defense and like, really like, well, you're privileged too. And I'm like, I'm like, 
you know what? I don't have the energy for this. Like you've, you've gone a long time in your life and you've chose to stay in this mindset. And I, I actually don't have this energy. That's my boundary. Like I, I, I knew he wasn't ready to receive and, and that was me. Um, but supporting and listening, it's like, it's, it seems so simple to me, but, but it's, it's really not. It, it's, People don't people don't take a step back. They don't take their egos out of it. So um, just really listening to the people who are going through these experiences and, and trying your best to just be like, you know what, that is actually so valid or taking a minute and reflecting on it. And rather than taking your your guilt and, and, and all of that into the equation. So I know that was a very long answer, but um, I think this is a very long question. So <laughs> this, could go, this could go for hours, but it could it could be it could be our five hour conversation. I have young children. How do you think we should talk to young children about race and inequality in our community? And personally, how should I, how do you think I should be talking to my own kids about it? I think that's like a lot of pressure on parents that don't have it figured out, to be honest. I think that um, something that comes to mind when I think of that question, like right away, I was like, show them videos, (laughs) show them videos that a black or brown person or a black indigenous person of color made. To, to explain to them a little more about race and then you're also learning and um and and follow whatever whatever is said with that and and um I, I think that that could be an approach because i think that's a lot of pressure like hey i have to teach you about race and i want to make sure that you are not racist and i want to make sure that you are have no biases and it's like that's a lot i'm even worried i'm like i hope my kids have no anti-blackness like there is so much anti-blackness in the brown community it's like how do i create kids that have no anti-blackness and I'm like, I'm gonna try my best. Do you feel me? Like I I think that I combat it a lot, but but our world is rooted in anti-blackness and white supremacy. So I'm like, it's a lot of pressure for me. So like I can I can try a video too. Um but I think just just trying your best and not thinking that they're too young to talk about these things is really important. And challenging your kids. Being like, hey honey, like what was what was the reason why you did that with that with that black kid? Or like, you know, like I just want to tell you that like you I don't know, just Coming to your kids with love, trying your best is really what you all you can do. That's how I would answer that. I don't have kids, but I do have young people. So they are my kids. So that's that's kind of how I approach things. <laughs> As we close out our conversation, I would regret not asking you about your love of animals. If someone follows you on Instagram, they'll see you showing videos of bears outside your door <laughs> in Altadena and letting skunks and raccoons into your house to eat your cat's food. And I, I saw this. I'm like, am I seeing this correctly? <laughs> and so uh, where did this interest and love for animals come from? And I'll, I'll just leave that question at that. Animals are better than people at the end of the day. I'm going to say that. It's going to be an unpopular opinion, but um, animals are just, uh, they are so healing to be around. I grew up with cats, so that, that kind of started it. By, but to be honest, I will credit my mom. My mom has been a wild one since day one. Um, she used to feed raccoons from her hands. We have pictures of it. And obviously I learned from that. Raccoons used to come in our house. They would actually open our windows and come in our house. We live in Altadena, so we have a lot of animals. And literally we still have this joke to this day that they stole my sister's cell phone, the sidekick, because we never found it one night when they came in. And to this day, I'm like, they had to steal it. No one comes up here. We're in a very secluded area. There's no way. My love and my interest um, came definitely from my mom. But I think since I was little, I questioned a lot. Like, I think I've always been a little radical, but I questioned like, why do we eat animals? Like what, what makes us think that we have that right? Um, or why, like, why are humans so entitled? Like humans are so entitled. Like we're like, this earth is ours and we're going to ruin it and eat whatever we want. And I don't necessarily think that I agree with that mindset. I don't eat meat. 
as I got older and I finally had like my own money, I was able to finally become pescatarian and then I was able to become vegetarian and closer to vegan. I'm, I'm pretty close to vegan. I'm also flexible because I think people need to be gentle with themselves. But I think it came from my mom. I think it came from living in Altadena. I, I just don't fear animals. Like, I'm, I don't know. I, I don't fear. I think a lot of times we were like so much fears instilled in us about animals. Like, oh, my God, please be careful around the raccoon. They're going to kill you or the bear's going to kill. You. I'm like, you guys, I'm around them in real life, not on TV. So, so I actually know what they're actually like. And I think in the same way we have biases against races, we have biases against animals, too. I'm like, y'all, like. Not not to compare race and animals, but I'm like y'all. Like we we don't need to instill fear and put fear into everything. So I think animals are healing. I love them. They're like who I love to be around every day. Um, The beings I love to be around, and hopefully I have my farm one day because that is my life goal. And living in my treehouse is is really living my dream. So yeah. (laughs) Well, you are the Altadena Snow White. We have a running joke that we call myself because Snow White's white. We call myself Snow Brown. So, uh, so you are so on on brand for that one. So, so last two questions. When you think about the next five years, ten years, and beyond, what inspires you, and are you optimistic about Pasadena's future? I think hood liberation really inspires me because I'm not going to lie, education is not always inspiring to be in. Because I'm like, oh my God, there's so much similarity than when I was in high school. That's not a good sign. I think collaboration gives me a lot of energy that I need because sometimes we can like, I think sometimes we could be a little more like negative about our future rather than thinking about like, oh my God, there's actually so many beautiful things happening in our city. I think sometimes to be honest with you, I get really discouraged about gentrification. Like that's something that I, I don't think that I fully process. And I like, I talked about in therapy and I'm like, I still don't think I can wrap my head around that Pasadena will look different in five years and 10 years. Like it really like impacts me because... I already see it, but I'm like, I can't even imagine further down the line what that's going to look like. Something that gives me hope is, as I said, hood liberation, but working with the people that are still here to keep us here through things like markets gives me a lot of hope. And I, I really think that our newer generation is so dope and so radical and so revolutionary that I think that we're pushing, they're pushing such amazing things, amazing, inter- like to think about all intersections. I think our last generations only thought about race. I think that our newer generations are like really thinking about intersections, like from sexuality to gender, to um, race, to religion. Like I think to ability, I think I'm really hopeful. They give me so much hope for Pasadena. And I'm like, as long as y'all are leading, y'all will make, continue to transform this community and continue to keep this community growing rather than stagnant. So I will continue to keep young voices in the liberation to keep us doing this work. So that is something that keeps me very much optimistic, but I can't say everything always keeps me optimistic. What do you think success is for you? And also what is success for the movement that you help pioneer with liberation? I don't know why the word success I never identify with probably because it's very much like linked to capitalism and linked to like productivity. And I think that every time I hear the word success, I'm like, I try not to even say it, but sometimes I have to say it. But when I think about the word, I'm like, yeah, like, I've reached my, I've reached all the things like successfully that I've like wanted to do with, with like, Oh sure. I got a master's degree. I've got this, you know, I've got that, but, or what's defined for me as success. But to be honest, success 
is really me being happy, like really being happy. And that's not a traditional answer, but genuinely feeling good and helping others feel happy, which I think I'm doing in my work and in my life and my purpose. Uh, I think like genuinely just, I just think about like the word happy. I'm like, I, I really genuinely feel like I've been happy and, and, and that really makes me feel really full. But I would say to continue to serve my community, that, that is like the definition of success. Like continue to be true, be happy and serve my community. And then success for Hood Liberation would look like us having a community center. That is definitely a goal, definitely a something that I really hope to get to. I really genuinely feel like we're going to get there. I hope that we can one day fund ourselves rather than relying on like grants. I, I, I don't know why, I don't know how, but I, I just continue to manifest that we will have a space in Pasadena that young people can go to or spaces to have services to continue community healing and to continue to serve our community in so many ways and all the ways that we've talked about before. I think one of the great things about this podcast is, and I've mentioned this over and over and over again on different shows, is that it's given me the ability to talk to different people. I'm a very shy person, a very quiet person, but this has provided me the opportunity to talk to people like yourself that I don't think we would probably run into each other otherwise. I'm really grateful for the time that you've shared with, with us. And thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate your energy and I appreciate you being so open to learn from someone like me and so open to learn as someone who is a white man. Like I, I really feel hopeful when I know like white folks who are willing to learn and grow alongside us. So appreciate you. Again, my many thanks to Nadia for coming on the show. If you're interested in learning more about Nadia's work and Hood Liberation, please visit them at hoodliberation.com and follow them on social media. I talk a lot in this podcast, much more than I ever anticipated. But what is more important than words are actions. One of my many goals of the show is to spur engagement. We often get trapped thinking that we are powerless but that is not the case. With big actions like starting a community advocacy group like Hood Liberation, we can make immeasurable differences. But we can also do small things to improve our neighborhoods. Like Nadia expressed, it starts with coming to each conversation with a willingness to learn and with a heart filled with love. So let that be our goal today and our first step toward bridging what divides us. And thank you for listening. This podcast is free, but it takes time and effort to produce it. If you are local to the greater Pasadena area and interested in sponsoring the show, please let me know. I have also joined the Patreon model for podcasting. So if you're interested in supporting the show that way, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash the Crown City Podcast. And if you're a business owner or community leader and want to share your story, I would love to learn more about you and have you on the show. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing and rate and review the show as it is a way for others to find it. I welcome your comments, feedback, and suggestions, and you can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. You've been listening to the Crown City Podcast, and until next time, please remember to stay well, stay positive, and as always, see you around town.